I'm Chance Gardner. I'm the creator of the Magical Egypt series. And I'm here to announce a Kickstarter campaign to help us fund new episodes of Magical Egypt. After 15 years, worldwide DVD sales, and millions of views on YouTube, the question we get asked most often is, when are you going to make some new episodes of Magical Egypt? We think the time is finally right to make a new run of shows, and we're here asking for your help. Magical Egypt has always been decisively outside the mainstream paradigm, so we've been free to tackle subjects that are too controversial for television. The downside of being outside the mainstream paradigm is we have to be creative in where we look for money and how we finance the shows. And that's where you come in. Your passion, your enthusiasm, your outpouring of support, your willingness to share the show with friends have all made the original Magical Egypt the cult classic that it is today. And now you can help to make a whole new run of episodes. Better, deeper, weirder, and more important than ever before. This is an opportunity to play an important part in helping to create the content you want to see. We've created an awesome list of perks and prizes to reward you for your participation. We've also created a line of Magical Egypt swag that we call Afterlife Essentials. Don't be caught dead without them. These prizes were created exclusively for participants of the Magical Egypt Series 2 Kickstarter, and they are not available anywhere else. And folks, please don't underestimate how even a moment of your time brings us closer to the premiere of new episodes of the Magical Egypt Series. Let's make history together, and let's collaborate in making the kind of content we all want to see. We were there, and this whole thing was exploding around us. We were watching the stuff going on on television, but we had, we had plenty of vodka, and plenty of good smoking material, and uh, we were watching this stuff going on on television. Okay, guys, welcome back to the Grand America Show. We are going to be chatting with Mr. John Anthony West himself uh, a little bit later. But first, the first show of the new year, too, so that's pretty cool. Anyway, but first, as always... Um, I had my ears pierced for three days, Dunlop. How's it going, buddy? Good. I just wasn't satisfied with where the placement was. Jesus. Give me a hard time about anything. Shouldn't we say a little bit more about who John Anthony West is there? So just sort of do we need that... to? I think we do. For the three people that... Yeah. Oh, come on. Don't... It's insulting to our audience. Just... Oh. Well, I didn't really no, know I just much think they're that. one of the three. Yeah, he was. He did the Sphinx documentary, right? In uh, back in the nineties, proving that it was older than everybody him thought. Him in shock. Him yeah. in shock. And he's like this Egyptologist then he guy. He does his magical Egypt. Have you not seen those? Oh, those magical Egypt tours. There's like ten episodes of that. Oh, and that DVD. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So basically, like Indiana Jones style Egyptologist. Super cool dude. So yeah, I just wanted to tell people that's what they're in for. I'm sure, they, I'm sure they could look at the show notes. I do try and put all the links to the stuff we talked about and all the, um, you know, the guests links and everything in there as well. I meant to say that there's a couple sc- times here that there's a, usually like a short story written in the show notes. Oh God, mostly copy and paste it. <laughs> so, so new year. Happy new year. Yeah. First episode of the year, I guess. Really? Well, uh, well, either way. Well, you re-released... I uh, re-released McGowan, but... Uh, this is the that. first new release. So, yeah, Happy New Year. Thanks. Yeah, it's cold as fuck in the igloo. Right? Not in the igloo. In the igloo is actually not too bad. Yeah, because the heater's been on the for been six on. hours. The heater's been on since... I know I put the heater on at nine o'clock this morning. It's been on full blast. 
for nine hours. That's not bad. Not bad. Yeah. yeah. I've got those little heating um, things in my toes and my uh, shoes. It was minus 30 this morning, though. Yeah. Brutal. So support the show. Go to slash support. Check out all the different options there. Uh, I still haven't, I didn't get the pictures of the t-shirts up yet. Oh, you haven't done that yet? But maybe I I'll, wonder why nobody's asking yeah, for t-shirts. Maybe I'll do that tonight. I'll try and remember. So I do have a couple t-shirts left over of Save Sasquatch. I actually have a medium original, original white one with all the words on the back and everything I found. Darren? Yeah, I Yeah, and then I have a whole bunch of uh, Take the Shot and a whole bunch of classic gray, gray Americans. Classic gray. Yeah. So yeah, grab those. Grab some shirts while they last. Um, what, think, are, what are we asking for? Twenty five dollars donation. If you're minimum twenty five. Minimum twenty five. If you're on this side of the pond, if you're on the other side of the pond, it's thirty. If you're in Canada, it's fifty. <laughs> Do you know I tried to ship something? It was double, double to mail it in Canada than it was to the states. <laughs> Thanks, Canadian Canada. So what do you got for me? I got some, you know, a couple of listener emails and some synchronicities. We like to to hear from people out there. <laughs> I don't know about that jingle. I like it. Well, spam it. I like to get emails from listeners talking about their stories and stuff like that. Oh, is this and, a, started uh, playing a different jingle? No, 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 that's fine. No, it's, okay. it is, there is a synchronicity in here. What the fuck? Yeah. Why wouldn't you have said so? Why don't you pick one with... I, well, I did. I was trying to. Oh, okay. Whatever. I'm not playing another jingle. Okay. So this is from Eric. He says, hey, Graham. <laughs> I'm a rambling grand with synchronicities all over the web. And Darren is skeptical about everyone and don't believe it yet. This is kind of feedback and, and synchronicity. So Eric, Eric sends an email. Hey, Graham, been listening to the show for about a year now. And out of the eight to ten podcasts that I listen to, Grey America has become one of my favorites. I found the show by getting a random follow from you guys on Twitter. And after checking out a few episodes, I've been hooked ever since. I'm pretty sure I've heard Darren say that he runs the Twitter account. So let him know these randos, random follows work. There you go, buddy. Good job on Twitter. We've found a dedicated listener. At least worked for at least once. <laughs> Actually, I've connected with a couple of people on Twitter as well, like uh, people that do podcasts and somebody who I had already listened to his podcast when we bumped into each other on Twitter. Get on with it. What's your name's brother, actually? Get on with it. He says, I've been uh, looking for something to email you guys about for a while, and today I had a random synchronicity I figured I would throw your way. I had the day off work and started watching the new Netflix series, Making a Murderer. I binged watched Jesus, the. Jesus, f- I've heard about this show like fifty times. In just a re- couple days, I've heard of it like fifty times. Uh, I've been hearing about it for about two and a half weeks now. My hairdresser loves it too. I watched an episode. What anyway, continue. What was it like? 
I think the premise is it's all people who are accused of murder that didn't murder people oh, that were kind of set up or planted or whatever the fuck. Yeah. Hmm. Well, it's probably, I would probably be more interested in it than I really originally thought. I just don't really like the graphic and the title to make me not want to watch it. Oh, is it scary? No, I just don't want to watch like stuff about murders. You know? <laughs> he says, I binge watched the first four episodes this morning, but I had a haircut scheduled for the afternoon. So I wonder if his hairdresser watched it as well. Is that a synchro? <laughs> so I had to take a break to take care of that. Now, in the making, making of a murderous story, the victim's vehicle that is part of the murder investigation is a Toyota RAV4. And on my way home from my haircut, I drove behind this RAV4 of the same color in the show. I live about five miles out of town with a population of 3,500-ish, and the road I drive to get home seldom has traffic at all. While the RAV4 is a popular vehicle, I couldn't believe the chances that I end up following one home all the way home on the same day that I started watching the show. Thanks for reading my synchronicity. It wasn't very intense or significant, but I wanted to share it with someone, and I figured you guys would appreciate it. Keep up the awesome work on the podcast, and I'll keep trying to spread the Grimerica hegemony here in Wisconsin. I'm going to not rate that. Really? Nice guy. Okay. I don't want to. There's no point. After you watch the first four episodes, maybe. Yeah, exactly. It. I've only watched the first episode, and you fucking spoiled them. What? No. Just kidding. So, um, how is we'll a good... revisit. What's a good way he can spread the... Great America hegemony. Sign people up for the newsletter. Now, weren't you talking about something else, like Facebook or something? Oh, yeah, Facebook. I think that's, uh, we need more people sharing the show on Facebook. Likes are okay, but shares are better. So you think that's an underrated or underutilized uh, form of well, the thing publicity is, that we could get? Yeah, especially because neither of us have Facebook accounts that we link to Great America. So we need all you fuckers that are linked to Great America to share it in your timelines. Don't just like it. Share it. So what does that mean for me that somebody that's not too familiar with a face bag? Uh, I don't know. I'm not really that keen on it either. I just noticed that the difference is about, it's at least a couple of hundred to one. So in other words, if instead of somebody just clicking on and liking our page, they actually click, click, share. click share and it shares our page with people that are in their little circle? That's right. Okay. That's so the gist of it. That's the gist of it? Yeah. It's just, not just... Did you know that? Yeah, I knew that. Okay. Thanks, though. I suppose I had one coming. Yeah. Anything else? Yeah. In your I, bag I, of tricks? Yeah, I have another email here <clears throat> uh, from Jared. Actually, this is a Twitter dude. Jared Tom, Jared T. Oh, he, uh, he sent us in. We got to look at that. Uh, he sent us in that big theory. No, 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 that wasn't. Big Theory, what are you talking yeah, about? Yeah, yeah, the Big Theory. Oh, uh, I've got it in my email. You've got it too. Okay. We were supposed to read it and get it. I, I forwarded it to Randall for him. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. It's a okay, different type of theory. Yeah, he's always tweeting Randall and us, right? Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, hey, Jared, thanks for, uh, this is the third Jared in our little hegemon hegemony. That's kind of weird. There's probably a hundred Jareds. That's not a very popular name up here. Am I wrong? I don't know. You're an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> he says, Hey guys, after listening, 
several months to your awesome podcast, I thought I'd take the time to send you a message with a few of my curious stories. So he's got, he sent me a bunch of different stories. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm not going to read all of them because there's like four of them, but he talks about a UFO when he was a, a kid in a small country town in Australia, which was pretty cool. Kind of like this Kim Traley looking UFO. And then when he was nine or 10, he had a problem with sleepwalking. He sent me a story on that. And then he also had, uh, oh, weird. Yeah, the, this one about uh, green mist in the form of a human. But then he gets to the synchronicity. I want to read this because I, I like this one. Ready, Darren? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Traveling last year through the USA as a backpacker, and what I would like to add in there is like, like all the Aussies like to do, travel around for years, envious of all them. He said it was an amazing experience. And I believe being able to go with the flow and not care what your plans are the next day, then you open up yourself to more synchros. And I totally agree with that. And I agree with that's a great way to travel as well. Just meet people and, and follow along. I had reached Houston, Texas, where I was couch surfing with an awesome couple. Anyways, I was sleeping on the couch and I had this gnarly dream about a friend of mine. We were at a beach home in Australia and we were both running to jump in the water. As we were running, I forgot I had my socks on, so I stopped to take them off while my friend is still running into the water. By the time I get to the water, I see a lot of splashing and he's getting attacked by a shark. Nothing I could do. The dream ended, thought nothing of it, and then went on my journey. Two days later, I found myself in a random, back in New Orleans, trying, I think he's talking about a bar, a random bar back in New Orleans, still trying to decide what I was going to do after NOLA. That's New Orleans, Darren. Yeah, I got it. I was on Facebook. <laughs> I was on my Facebook wall, and I posted, where should I go next from New Orleans? I really had no clue and didn't even have a place in mind that would have been the next stop. Sitting at the bar for a half an hour, I'm going through my comments, and people kept saying, go to Nashville. Several people saying the same thing. I didn't really consider it because I, it wasn't the direction I was thinking of taking. As I'm looking at this comment, the bartender starts ringing a bell. I asked the bartender, what's the bell for? She replies, the guy over there orders a shot. It's called shark attack. <laughs> a bit taken aback, I was sure it was just a coincidence. Two girls, sisters, on a holiday were sitting close to the bar, and I mentioned the strange feeling I had about what happened. We got to talking, ended up having a great night drinking in NOLA. I found out later they were from Nashville, and they invited me to go back to Nashville. At that point, I could not refuse. Still not exactly how sure the synchro was able to take place, but everything happens for a reason, right? I guess. So no one got attacked by a shark? No. They just had a shark attack in the bar, and then he went to Nashville where everybody on Facebook was telling him to go with these two sisters. I'd like to hear more about what happened in Nashville, but... Mm. What's that Six seven? Oh, six it was point, a six point seven. It's what I would call a compound synchronicity. Yeah. It's kind of overlapping elements, right? The shark attack and the New Orleans and the yeah, Nashville thing. Oh, you're hurting my head with your compound synchronicities. Anyways, thanks, Jared. Yes, thanks. And thanks Jared. for the Twitter sport too. Absolutely. What's is that? I don't know. Well done. You're the Twitter dude. Okay. Well, you just keep talking then. I'll tell you what, I'll put a link to his Twitter in the show notes. 
Oh, yeah? yeah? No, you won't. Yeah, well, I do that all the time. Do you? Yeah. Hmm. Darren and Graham are going deep. It's a profound UFO quote of a week. Words to ponder and critique. Okay, that's, uh, that's good. It's a profound UFO quote of a week. So it's at, Man, you love that one. at Thompson Jared without a P. All right. Thanks, Darren. Oh, some pretty rude tweets there. From him? <laughs> yeah. Really? Yeah. <laughs> uh, Not to us. So this is the UFO quote of the week, my favorite part. Yeah, I'll give you a, a snout says, breaking news. Scientists discover a new type of stupid. Comes in the form of at someone and at someone else. One of them's Carly Fiorina. Oh, I see. Kyle Kulinski. Probably get sued now. Okay, can I get into this quote of the week? <sighs> get into your fucking quote. Two tiny ones. No. One sentence long. Oh, fuck, you get a dollar for every time you said that. It appears to be a metallic object. Tremendous in size. Directly ahead and slightly above. I'm trying to close in for a better look. That was Captain Thomas Mantell, USAF. These were his last words as he closed in on a UFO in 1948. Minutes later, his plane was to crash and he was to lose his life. I didn't realize that. That's a pretty sad one. Jesus. <laughs> and then Why'd this, you even read that part? That's not a quote. Yeah, it is. Well, it's... He didn't say that. Yeah, he did. He was oh. in the cockpit saying that, that before he died. And then the next one is, there was no ordinary, or this was no ordinary UFO. Scores of people saw it. It was no illusion, no deception, no imagination. That was Air Marshal Azim Dodpora, a Zimbabwe speaking about a UFO sighting over the country in 1985. There you have it, buddy. There you have it. UFOs are even in Zimbabwe. Yeah. I think we actually have a couple of listeners in Zimbabwe, or maybe at least one. Yeah. Hey, Zimbabweans. Zimbabweans? Like a Hawaiian? Yeah, maybe. Zimbabweans? Huh. Anything else? I think that's about it, eh? Keep it... Uh, yeah, keep it short. This one will Short and sweet since we've been enough. in the studio for fucking six hours now. Yeah. Um, yeah, of course. Check out the show, gramerica.ca slash support. All the different options to support the show there. Uh, gramerica.ca slash news where you can sign all your friends up for the newsletter uh, we'll get an app soon enough I suppose so that you can tell your totally technologically illiterate friends how to listen to the show just by throwing the app on there yeah spread the word yeah tell your friends about the show support the show share the show spam gram can I say my email because people might not get gram it's actually G-R-A H-A-M not the way Darren pronounces it, at grammarica.com. I should, uh, maybe I'll make an email, grammarica.com. <laughs> There's probably going to be a ton of emails coming through forwards that. to it. <laughs> well, if we have an app, we'll just have a button, a link. Okay. We should just put a button on the Well, actually, there is, a, there is a button on the show notes. So if people are listening, oh, yeah. just go to the show notes, boom, boom. Bingo, bango. Yep. 
Boom shakalaka. All right, guys, enjoy the chat with John Anthony West. We'll see you on the other side. excited to have with us tonight we have john anthony west who's another one of these rogue scholars he's an egyptologist he's written um a couple books and he does tours in egypt one of his books there was uh serpent in the sky and he's done a dvd series that people are raving about that like magical egypt DVDs. yeah magical egypt i actually heard there might be a sequel coming out soon i know i'll we'll have to ask him about I've, that i've been getting tweets all day to ask him about the sequel yes we have twitter questions to ah. ask yeah, so we're we're just happy to have you here, John. I know you're an open-minded guy that likes to talk about uh, all kinds of things, mainly Egypt-related, but uh, yeah, welcome to the show. I'm not the least bit open-minded. I have very <laughs> decided opinions. Believe me, <laughs> so, you're, you're and still... I change. You're and still... I change only under difficulty, but at least I know that that's the case. That's funny, but somebody that bucks like the materialistic paradigm we live in, to me, seems like they have an open mind. <laughs> Yeah, well, any most of the people, almost invariably, people who claim to have an open mind are the most closed-minded people on the face of the planet. Ooh, that one hurts a bit. <laughs> so, well, Graham, I think you're on the opposite so? of the. Uh, I think Graham's on the opposite end, where sometimes his mind's so open that his brains fall. That's all right. I don't mind. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what's uh, what's new? Have you been following all the latest stuff going on with Egypt? I, I, there's been some oh, stuff in the news. Since my, since much of my living, such as it is, depends upon leading my tours to Egypt, you bet I'm following it. Well, people and, are still interested in it, that's for sure. I mean, I, when we, whenever yeah, we do well, a show on Egypt, it gets it's very popular. Yeah, well, so it should be. It's the only opportunity that people have in the 21st century to actually experience what civilization was once like before it became progress, which is, in my opinion, a form of shiny barbarism. So Egypt, and Egypt's unique in that sense because I'm sure that the same, you might say, the same esoteric wisdom prevailed in all of the ancient civilizations, China, India, and so on, probably South America as well. But Egypt is the only place where there's enough left so that you can actually experience it. And uh, I mean, I mean, I know I've been doing my trips for, this is the, the 30th year, actually. And... Uh, and the result is always the same, that people come back after two weeks of an immersion course. Really, is it's like a two-week PhD course. Um, it's, you know, it's pretty intense. Yeah. Um, and, people, and people come back really understanding the difference between civilization and so-called progress. And it's easy enough to say it, and you can read about it, but until you've actually experienced it, it's... It's just on the page. You don't know. I often say I 
I lecture often, and uh, I often start a lecture with saying that Egypt is like sex. So that gets everybody's attention. And, and you say, why is Egypt like sex? Well, it's simple. It's because you can read all about it, and that's inter interesting and informative. <laughs> and you can look at pictures, and that's informative in a, so a different way. But until you've actually experienced it, you do not and can, cannot understand it. So this is why Egypt is, you know, for those who can afford it, it's, uh, it's a must-see if you're seriously interested in understanding what a civilization was once like. So, it, it, probably, it probably changed it, my life. Back in, in 1990, I was there for um, over a month. I think I spent about yeah. a week in Dahab and a month in Egypt and a couple months in Israel. But we traveled, we traveled uh, with a group of people that I had met while traveling, but we traveled down to the bottom, like Abu Simbal and back on the Faluka oh, yeah. and so, so it was... It was amazing for me back then, but I can't imagine what it would be like going with somebody like yourself who, who kind of knows the ins and outs. Like we were kind of scrambling around to make everything happen, you know, like just a bunch of sort of ragtag travelers. Yeah, well, it, it, it's different because if, if, you don't, if you don't see Egypt through symbolist eyes, which is, the, is radically different, but absolutely scholarly interpretation of Egypt put forward by... Which is the, the great genius with the unpronounceable name. <laughs> if you don't see it through, the, through those eyes, you, you, you feel it, but you don't understand anything because Orthodox Egyptology is, is, is a catastrophe. I mean, it is put together by people with zero comprehension of, of what they're actually studying. So the, the facts are correct, but, or often correct. But the interpretation of those facts is done without any comprehension whatsoever of what constitutes um, an, an initiatic and esoteric society. Why is that then? Why why is it so such a catastrophe? It, like you said, it's it's very strange because the I mean scholars to begin with, as a, as a general but not infallible rule, there are no infallible rules. But scholarship, as a general rule, is done by people who are not creative people. And, you know, they've never written a sonnet. They've never written a, an advertising jingle, for that matter, which is not so easy to write, as a matter of fact. They've never sculpted a sculpture. They've certainly never built a, a, designed a, a temple to the god, a truly sacred structure. So they don't know anything about these things. And the nature of most scholarship is that it's a purely intellectual exercise, and in this case, most of them are 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 are, are true. What I what I called, I mean, the the antithesis of civilization that we have today, which I call the, the Church of Progress, which is in every pejorative possible sense a real church, and these are priests within the Church of Progress, whose whose central dogma is that we with our hydrogen bombs and our striped toothpaste are the highest examples of evolution ever ever self-created on the face of the planet. And this is to miss Egypt altogether. They're incapable of understanding. And besides any one of them, there are a few that it, it changes slowly, like it moves like Pluto in orbit. And, and it takes like 340 years to, to go through a cycle. And... Uh, and so these are the people least equipped 
to understand what they're actually looking at and studying. So the facts may be correct, but the, the interpretation is catastrophic, and it's hard to, to explain in so many words. I mean, I, I do, and Schroeder has them in our books, but it, it's impossible to truly understand what a disaster it is until you go there and, and get both points of view, which I always do that. I mean, on the trip, I say, well, this is what the academics, quackademics, I call them, <laughs> say, and this is what the symbolist interpretation says, and you judge for yourself. I'm not going to jam it down anyone's throat. There are the two different points of view, and unfortunately, um, there are only a handful of people <clears throat> Has who know it- enough about has it has, has it changed at all lately, like in the last decade, with the discovery of places like uh, Gobekli Tepe? And I think it's getting uh, it's well, getting pretty hard to say that Easter Island isn't it, a lot it, older well, than no, I no. think. Well, no, no, it it is it is happening, but as I said, about as quickly as Pluto in orbit. Yeah, it's happening, and and in fact, this is the this is the smoking gun, Gobekli Tepe. There are a number of other things as well, and Shock and I are hoping, if we can get the funding together from somewhere, and the funding's always been a problem, to do a follow-up to our, our old Mystery of the Sphinx, the Charlton Heston show, um, with Gobekli Tepe as the, as the smoking gun, proving, I mean, beyond any possible question of doubt, that civilization goes much, much further back than, than the quackademics will acknowledge, and the level of civilization is infinitely more superior than than they will allow, and so yeah, so it's changing in that regard. But it's, it's unbelievably slow, and it doesn't. It neither surprises nor angers me because I've been involved in this for so long, and um, I take it as as part of the territory. I, do, I know how you can get some funding. What I know how you can get some funding. Well, you and Shaw could start go to work, get a job on Wall Street. <laughs> yeah, you could start doing climate change or global warming research. They'll give lots of money away to. to well, try exactly. That right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, we're we're actually. I'm, I'm. I have a feeling that we will get it. The trouble is that both Shock and myself are 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 in our separate ways really lousy at putting putting funding together. I mean, we just Shock is. So busy with his, his academic um, schedule, and I'm so completely disorganized and incapable of, of work, you know, of doing that sort of thing. I mean, it comes sort of normal for people who are actually creative at organize, organizing the finances. The last thing we're good at. There are exceptions, but I'm not one of them. However, I, I, I think, and my son is 28 years old and is really a good guy is going to be helping me doing the organizing and stuff. And crowdfunding is is getting, I mean, Kickstarter is just a little thing. It's hard to put big bucks together. But crowdfunding is, I think, happening already or about to happen, which you can go after small contributors, investors, who actually get something back. See, with Kickstarter, you can't give them money back. You can give them a video or whatever it is that you're you kickstarting. But crowdfunding, you can go after real bucks. Um, and, you know, and, and the people who will take a chance on that, um, 
is a good opportunity, they'll, they'll get it back. I mean, our original video that Charlton Heston won the Spirit of Sphinx made buckets of money, but not for us. Uh, we have to sign a very unfavorable contract with what's now Lionsgate, was then Trimark, went through a few uh, transitional stages. And we knew we weren't going to get anything back because nobody had ever heard of us before that, so they were taking a chance. And you know, there, there was, we had no... We had no negotiating, um, you know. We had had no no negotiating chips, but we signed a contract knowing that whatever happened, we weren't going to get anything major out of it. And then my partner, now deceased, um, who made the whole thing happen, so I don't really hold it against him. But he stole one hundred fifty thousand dollars out of the till, so we ended up with nothing except an Emmy and. A lot of a lot of attention, which was something. So I know that's what happened. Yeah, like how much did yeah. uh, back in those days? I mean, that's pre-internet. How much different channels did that uh, open up? Well, was went, people but, getting a hold of you to offer different uh, research or different? You know, like did that open up oh, any avenues of research? No. Well, see, in those days, it wouldn't have because we were hoping it would do that. In fact, but no, the the authorities at the time were dead set against us. And even when I was doing my trips, they were, you know, they were trying to, they were chasing me around. That's a long story, but I won't go into it here. <laughs> but, uh, but no, they, they didn't. Uh, the, and we couldn't have got permission to do further research. And this again, one of these days, not too long from now, it'll be part of a big book that Chuck and I are going to be writing about the whole Sphinx story of the Sphinx, which is a very interesting story, I must say. It's, it's a better script than a Raiders of the Lost Ark, because it's real. But it really was, and is, a fascinating ongoing story. Um, and uh, uh, we'll see, because now we have the smoking gun, which we didn't have then, which is Gobekli Tepe, which proves that you know, what hunters and gatherers, hunter-gatherers, these hunter-gatherers that are flinging around 15-ton um, pillars carefully carved with no evidence whatsoever of the tools that they would be using to do these high-relief carvings. This is a big deal. And and this is acknowledged by the archaeologists themselves. The dating is not challenged. That What they don't do, however, is say, they say that, oh, well, this will change. You know, this will make a bit of difference in our thinking. No, it won't make a bit of difference in their thinking. It totally destroys the entire paradigm that they've been talking about for the last 150 years or so. Totally. It means that civilization capable of, of substantial architecture, it's not quite the Sphinx and the Sphinx, and the Sphinx temples, but this is a big deal. I mean, this is like mini Stonehenges, but not that many. And with these elaborate and, and very well-executed carvings, and and so everything has to change, and we're you know, and we're um, we're one of the we're among the people who are shocking myself among the people who are have orchestrated that change. Mm-hmm. And it would be nice if you know somebody if there were such a thing as a visionary billionaire uh, coming along and you know throwing a few mil at us so we could get our work done. But you know, visionary billionaires are about as rare as open-minded scientists who are about as rare as, op- as 
as fundamentalist Christians who love their enemies. So this is this is <laughs> this is not an easy quest. But we're sitting there. Anybody listening in who's got a few mil to spare and wants to make a big splash and actually make some money, get in touch. So far as we can tell, we don't have any rich uh, listeners yet. <laughs> but why, why am I on this program? <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think the other thing about Gobekli Tepe is it's like, I don't know, to me anyway, like the, the similarities between the carving of that and the the stuff at Easter Island, like the different, it just well, looks to me almost the exact yep. same. Yes, well, this is this is Shock's department because he's been to Easter Island a few times. And yeah, this it, it, it certainly, there are certainly similarities there. And there are similarities too to... Uh, really to pre-dynastic, certain pre-dynastic Egyptian things, stylistically. Mm. And stylistic similarities are not to be dismissed as, uh, oh, well, they just happen to do it that way. No, it's, it's there almost has to be, except difficult to prove, a, a real connection between those those civilizations. Hmm. Have you... Have you uh... Have you heard about that? Well, you probably have heard about that thing. But what do you what do you think about that story that came out about the thermal thermal anomalies in the Great Pyramid? They're talking about some different stones being, you know, registering different heat signatures. Did you hear about that? The different stones doing what? Yeah, I mean, I heard about the the various anomalies. No, this wouldn't surprise us. This wouldn't surprise us one little bit because we are convinced, absolutely convinced that the pyramids themselves, especially the Khafra Pyramid, the second one, and the Menkara Pyramid, are demonstrably built to incorporate, shall I say, different styles of masonry. Whenever in architectural history you see different styles employed in the same building, you know that different, period, different time periods are involved in the construction. As an analogy, you could buy yourself a cool Victorian house and when you buy it, you find it has this really nice modern IKEA kitchen. You don't say, "Whew, these are pretty. These are pretty heads up Victorians, 1850s houses." And look at this: the IKEA was already around and put in this nice modern kitchen. No, you know the kitchen was was is a new addition, is total revision, and that it's an 1850 house with a 1990 kitchen. It, um, built into it. So when it, when you see two different architectural styles, radically different architectural styles in the same building, you know that you're talking about two different periods of construction. So it wouldn't surprise me one little bit if when they go in with whatever kind of high-tech equipment they're going in with, if they find things that pertain to an earlier period of construction, I don't for two seconds think that they're going to find any kind of a tomb in there of anybody, because it's pretty obvious to me anyway that of all the things the pyramid is, a tomb is not one of them. It it is a little strange that this uh, this infrared thermography has shown these stones to be like even a completely different co color of heat signature. Like they do look like it's not just a, you know a different type of stone. It looks very odd. But I wonder if that's... Oh, that I haven't seen. No, I mean, I, mean, I just heard that they found anomalies in there. So that's something <laughs> new that, I mean, that I haven't seen. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's, that's interesting. Well, we'll see what comes of it. I mean, it's it's one of these things. I don't know how much of, you know how much is blown up. Uh, you know how much the 
you know, the news has just blown it out of proportion and it makes it seem like it's some anomaly. But like you said, it could just be some, you know, some other type of uh, architecture or stone. No, but that's a big deal, actually. <clears throat> if, 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 from, from our point of view, to be able to prove, because we can't do that, we can... We can pretty much do that in the argument I just used with with Kafra, but with the Great Pyramid, we, that's shocking myself, see what we think are are anomalies, but but not but not enough to really base a case on, you know, that would really let's say stand up and stand up in an academic court. But if they actually found certain kinds of things proving that it's built in stages, that's already a huge deal. Because it means that they have to revise their own, their own, um, you know, their own belief in when the, when the pyramid was built. When exactly? Uh, where do you put uh, the the pyramid? Is that around like thirty six thousand years ago or something like that? Well, we don't know, but my guess is that yes, my guess is that whenever the Sphinx complex went up, the pyramids or some form of some kind of structure went up where the pyramids now are, and that the pyramids that we now see <clears throat> have been reconfigured or added onto or superimposed upon something that was left there before. Remember, if we're correct on this dating, and it really is, which is made up out of thin air, this 36,000 date is based upon Egyptian, an Egyptian stone tablet, an Egyptian papyrus called the Turin papyrus, and a tablet called the Palermo stone, where they talk about these much earlier um, reigns in Egypt and thousands of years when the gods themselves, the Neturu, were in charge, and then uh, when the sort of semi-divine kings were thousands of years, and the names are given in the regnal years, um, the Shemsuhor, the companions of the followers of Horus. And all of this is formal. The Egyptian texts talk about them, and these are simply... Uh, dismissed by the quackademics as they know more, as if they know more about ancient Egypt than history than the ancient Egyptians did. So, if you take it as given the, the difference in, given the the, the 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 drastic weathering to the Sphinx, the water weathering, and given the difference in architectural styles employed in the Khafra and the and the uh, Menkaure pyramid, and also other anomalies with the pyramids of Dashur at at, um, Ben Pyramid and the Red Pyramid, all of this adds up to, let's say, a very good, although still circumstantial case that there's much more involved than they're letting on. So anything that they come up with that will actually back up the idea of separate stages of construction would be, you know, huge news for us. Hmm. What's what's your thought about some of those uh, theories of, you know, the pyramid being a you know a generator of ener- certain types of energy? Or, we had a question from from Zach on on Twitter that was asking about that. Well, yeah, it's it, this, the pyramid. When you go into it, it's certain. Put it this way: uh, the, the only theory less persuasive than than that they were landing for astronauts <laughs> is, that, is that they were tombs. This is this is the standard theory, and it's absolute and total nonsense. No evidence has ever been found. They're completely 
they, they, they're completely illogical as tombs, with gigantic constructions that are oriented you know, but to the millimeter, to the cardinal direction. I mean, this is an unbelievable, these are incredible structures, and the more you look at them, the more amazing they become. But, yeah, they do something when you go in them. They don't feel like temples. You say, well, well, that's not science. Well, no, certain things are not science, but science is, only, is a very limited, however however powerful it is, it's a, it's a very limited kind of way of looking at certain kinds of phenomena. You can't look scientifically at Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. You can't prove that the Ninth Symphony is a better piece of music than Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. <laughs> God help you if you don't know that. Nobody else can help you. So science is to be taken with, with a certain amount of, of um, caution, I say. And yeah, when you go in there, you feel that it does something. You do a meditation session, which we do on my trips, for a couple of hours in the king's chamber. You, you then know experientially that it does something. It has something to do, let's put it this way. Egypt is an ancient Egypt. is a one-issue society. And that one issue, which is very easy to express and very difficult to actually do, is that is, is that the quest for immortality, for, for eternal life, is what motivates everything in Egypt that we have still left to us. In other words, all of that religious architecture and all of the architecture that we have left is religious and spiritual. And you feel it when you do a med- go into a deep meditation in the, in I the wish, pyramid itself. I wish I would have uh, hmm? done that. I think when I was in that, when I was in the Great Pyramid 20... Five years ago, I feel like I was rushed or something. Like I don't know if I had time. Well, you to were. Like... <laughs> yeah. Well, you don't get time. You have to now. <laughs> then you couldn't do it legally. You, you could have done it by bribing a lot of people for a, a whole bunch of money. And now you can do it legally. It's still not cheap, but I mean it's added into the price of the tour. Right. And you have it to yourself, and you don't have to worry about anyone kicking you out or anything like that. And yeah, this is this is a. <laughs> Is a major experience. Do you get a l- alone time in the chamber or anything like that? In the yeah, so for the group, yeah. Do, do, I mean, you could, you any, could buy it for yourself individually if you wanted to, but it would be pretty expensive. Do you have any experiences from people that stand out for you, like that people have talked about on your tours? Oh, yeah, sure, lots of them. I mean, I mean, almost no one comes out of it unmoved, but some people have really... <laughs> A couple of times, people have been talking in tongues, and wow. people have all kinds of very, very profound, very profound um, emotional experiences in there. Yeah, you can be, people come out starry-eyed, I'm telling you. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's not, you know, it's not meditating in your bathroom. <laughs> can you, st- uh, can you like, sneak in that shit at night? Or is that, well, like, grounds to get shot? What do you mean? Like if I was in Egypt and I wanted to go in there, can you just like? Is it like? Can you just like no, jump the no, fence? No, no, no. It's got to be done. No, it's got to be done. It's got to be leg- legally through the authorities. I mean, it's absolutely legal, but it's expensive, and you'd have to know who to go through if you wanted to do it by yourself. Forget what it is, but it's about. It's based on a group of fifteen or thereabouts, but it's kind of a set price, and I think it's with the 
with the bakshish, with the guards and all the rest and the inspectors and blah, blah. But it's somewhere around $1,800 for 15 people. So you divide that out. But it, my trip, it's included. So yeah. it makes the trip a bit more expensive. But yeah. I hate you know, getting pennies from people here and five bucks there and 20 bucks. If you were in Egypt, you know that the drill that you're always being asked so most of the bakshish is part of the trip and you know the people who are with me uh, take care of all of that stuff we're freed from the endless cries for bakshish so, <laughs> so it's like going to chichen itza it's, it's like it is it's like the the mexicans almost free almost free I remember. Yeah, they, well, that's I, right. Yeah, very cheap price. Very cheap price. <laughs> I remember the kids it, on the on that present for you. Present for you. But you know, it's, it's irritating as it is. That's the way some of those guys make their living. And now, poor guys, they hardly have any living because tourism is that is so it's so it's so decimated. Places like Which, that are by the way, easy to get grass. For us, for those who don't listen to the goddamn prestitutes. <laughs> I mean, that anybody that anybody could be afraid of going to Egypt when you see what's going on in America is is unbelievable. I mean, all this ISIS stuff, and these people are really, you know, should be waterboarded along with Dick Cheney and all the rest of those scumbags. They really do deserve it because yes, there's stuff that's going on now, but really, for years. Nothing. Even I was there for the whole revolution. They're not, for the most part, they're not after us. Not with these ISIS loonies. They could be. They're here, too. And you don't need ISIS loonies. The figures I saw the other day, in 2015 so far, there have been 350-plus mass shootings. And only about two or three were Muslims. That's less than their percentage of the population. Mass shootings. You read about them every day. The cops blowing up all sorts of people. Schools, post offices, people driving onto the, you know, onto the road and killing. This is the most violent country in the world, next to maybe maybe Syria and, and Pakistan these days. And the stupid Americans are afraid to go over there. So, can I say but it, what it means... So with other people, what it means is that tourism is at a, I mean, the place is almost empty of tourists. And I mean, this is terrible for the poor Egyptians, for the people smart enough to ignore the prostitutes and just go. I mean, it's it's unbelievable to go there when it's almost empty. If you were there in 90, was it just before or was it just after the first Gulf War? Uh, it must have been before, yeah. Oh, then yeah. it was jammed. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty. It was pretty crazy. Yeah, but yeah, I, if you if you went if you went six months later when the war, after the war, when we were doing our filming for the Mystery of the Sphinx, it was empty. It was, I mean, it was fabulous. Huh. So that's good to reiterate that actually. That that from yeah. what people know, you're still doing the tours in Egypt, and it's safe as ever for the most part for what you're doing. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's like I tell people that was stupid. Um, it's like. How many times have you been driven down the road and all of a sudden you see the red, the lights are flashing and there's a, you know, there's a, there's a jam and it takes you 15 minutes to get by it and you see it's the ambulances are there, but you can see from the look of it that it just happened a few minutes ago. 
<clears throat> and you say to yourself, yourself, wow, you know, if I'd been 10 minutes earlier, that could have been me in the wreck, but it wasn't you, and you don't think twice about it, you just go. And it's, life is like that. Hmm. You know, if, if, if you're, I, I really do sort of believe in this destiny thing, if you've, if you've fated to go at a certain time, it's going to find you. Hmm. I remember having to give backsheesh to the, the these little kids in the Valley of the Kings. There's these walls, like the big cave, um, sorry, big valley walls, and there's caves up there where the priests were buried, apparently. So you can climb up there, but you have to give these little kids backsheesh, like a couple of Egyptian dollars to get into the cave. Why? Just, uh, you, know, no, you don't have no. to. It's just a nice gesture because they're, they're climb- they've climbed up the valley walls. And, you know, so I climbed in the cave and there's like bones and rags. And I don't know if these are like real bones and rags, but it's definitely. Oh, yeah. Like- oh, yeah, yeah. I know. Well, then that would have been a, just a, some of those are, those are empty tombs, not for the, not for the priests, but for the nobility and for the, the higher ups, as it were. And yeah, and there are those that have no, um, you know, artistic, no wall reliefs or nothing that they need to preserve and keep shut are, yeah, they're open. And, uh, yeah, you can go in and, yeah, sure, those are real bones. So we had, we had like, packs of matches, and we were, like, going right down to the depths of this cave, and I broke yeah. my thong. I was climbing over this stuff, and I broke you my thong, thong, and I had to my flip flops, uh. my flip flops. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, and I walk out in bare feet. It was pretty gross, but yeah, that's my story. Oh, well. That's my story from Valley of the Kings. So you could have got a splinter well, with, like, 5,000-year-old Egyptian bones. bones. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, Valley of the Kings, those would be 3,000 years old, 3,500 oh, 3, years. Yeah. That's not bad. So, hey, did you so guys those are new bones? Did you guys try any any stuff uh, in the in the Great Pyramid in the King's Chamber, like with sound at all? Like, did you try any? Because we hear about people trying. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Well, we believe, shocking myself and lots of other people, that that resonance plays in some in some way a very important role in there. Those so-called they call them relieving chambers. They're they're, they're not roll aids. They not, have nothing to do with architectural, the need for special architectural support for a variety of reasons I won't go into now. Mm-hmm. But they're there because they resonate. It's like a giant, a gigantic sound box. And, well, you know, if you've been up there, even if you were there with a bunch of other people in there, you can't even talk in there because, what is it called, the feedback or whatever. Yeah, reverberation. You have to do a reverberation that you have to, I mean, if, you, if you're going to, you can't have a conversation. You have to talk very slowly like this. Because seriously, because otherwise it scrambles it all. So, so down, and we did an experiment actually, because I don't know if you got down into the so-called pit at the very bottom of the pyramid. Um, and it's way below, it's as far below ground level as the king's chamber is above ground level. And it's, immediately underneath the Sphinx, but in order to get there, you have to go down this long ramp. That yeah, is the, the, very awkward, kind of. so-called Grand Gallery. And then at the very bottom of the Grand Gallery, then there's another long, constricted passage going down. Yeah. And then at a certain point, you make a, a, U, a U-turn and go back down the other way. So really, sound shouldn't travel it shouldn't turn those corners easily. And yet we did an experiment a couple of times where some of us were stayed up in the king's chamber and others went way down into the pit. It's as far below 
ground as the king's chamber is above ground. So it's a big climb. It's to get up to the king's chamber is about 12, 14 stories. And to get from ground level down into the pit is another 12, 14 stories. That's quite a bit. Um, but if you chant, do a chant in the upper chamber, and there are people in the lower chamber, the pit, they can hear it very clearly. Huh. So somebody knew what they were doing when they were designing this stuff. Wow. Yeah, it's just fascinating. What do you think about uh, some people's work that think it was a weapon of mass destruction? No, I think it's complete bullshit. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> to be kind, to be as kind as I can be about it. So I think it's what it's the two biggest pyramids are the ones that are anomalies. What do you mean by that? No, they're all anomalous. In other words, they're all different from each other. <clears throat> the biggest ones in Giza are are the are the King's Pyramid, are the um, Cheops, the Great Pyramid, and then the one next to it, the Khafra Pyramid, which is linked by a causeway to the Sphinx. But the other pyramids, which you wouldn't have seen in 1990 when you were there, because they weren't open to the public, they were part of a military reserv- um, camp, are the ones at Dashur, which is the Bent Pyramid and the Red Pyramid. Mm. <clears throat> and they opened them up. They moved the military camp. Hard to imagine the government doing anything sensible, but that was a good <laughs> thing to do. Any government, such as theirs. And um, and so they opened those up. And those are they're not quite as big as the as the king's cha- as the as the, the great pyramid or the Khafra pyramid. But they're broad. They're not much smaller, and they're amazing structures in their own right. Very each one different from the other and with lots of interesting features and we always, I mean, we always go there and they, even when Egypt was full of tourists, which it isn't now, we're, we're not on most, on the radar for many people, so it was always relatively empty even when the rest of Egypt was pretty crowded. How, uh, anyway. how much, uh, when do the tours run? Or you must be getting ready for one pretty quick after Christmas? Soon, yeah, I've got one coming up uh, in early January. What, what were you saying? When do they run? Yeah, you run a when? couple of years? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I run, if I can, four. But I don't always get that these days with everybody scared. But, yeah, I do them from a couple of them, usually one in late October, and sometimes another one in November, one in January, and one in February or February and March. Since the revolution, actually since 9-11, it's been difficult oh. getting getting things together. And then the, the revolution, 19, uh, 2011, I was there for that. That was a great time. And um, <laughs> it was. We had Egypt. We were the only tourists in Egypt. And we had, I was there with a private group that I, I usually do trips with in January. And um, we had... My friend who runs the group, um, we, we, the, the, the revolution started on the day most of us arrived in Egypt. And some people had a real hell of a job getting out of the airport. And my friend who runs the trip was a full trip. And he rented uh, one of the suites in the, in the Mina house, which is uh, it's like, a, they're like a set from Arabian Night, a, a Cecil B. DeMille Arabian Nights, unbelievable rooms. And we were there, and this whole thing was exploding around us. 
um, even in the Mina house, which is right in the shadow of the pyramids. And we were watching the stuff going on on television that we had. We had plenty of vodka and, and, and plenty of good smoking material. And uh, we were watching the stuff going on on television. And outside, you could tell you the stuff was going on. We could smell the tear gas wafting our direction. And the, you know, the, the, the television was blaring. Everybody has to leave Egypt and blah, blah, blah. And we said, the hell with this. We're not going to leave Egypt. If we were going to be marooned somewhere, we'll, you know, we'll stick it out. And sure enough, every, everybody left. The government said, no, don't expect us to help you if you're not out within 48 hours. Well, I, don't, I never expect the government to help me under any <laughs> circumstances. So, so we weren't worried about that. And we sort of took a vote and said, you know, we, we, the guy who runs my trips, a good friend and, and very resourceful, and we figured that if it simmered down within a few days, and the hotel was absolutely protected, nobody's going to go with that. And um, we figured that if in a couple of days it didn't simmer down, we'd find our way out somehow or another. We'd get into maybe Israel or possibly Libya, which we had not yet been liberated by our our, our wise um, politicians, and therefore it was still safe to go there. And or you know, in the worst case scenario, we'd go to Alexandria and figure out a way to charter a boat and get out. But it, it, those things were unnecessary in four or five days. It did simmer down, and we got our trip in, and we were the only tourists in all of Egypt. So we had lots of press, and incredible trip. We got to places where normally you don't get to because they opened them up to us, mm. to the public, and lots of press in Egypt itself, these brave tourists, blah, blah, blah. Nice. So, we interviewed so, that guy, remember? What guy? What? Ahmed oh. Abu Taleb. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, that was during the revolution. Was it? No, it wasn't. It was after the revolution. Or during the last 20, coup. 2013, probably. In the coup, uh, maybe. So, so do you, um, speaking of the revolution, since since Zahi Awas got sort of booted out from the whole antiquities thing, has there, has there been some sort of opening up or change, or do you see any any difference there with uh, with the new people involved? No, I mean, even, even with Zahi there, I mean, we were bitter enemies at one time, but on a personal level, we sort of buried the hatchet. And I get on quite well with them on a personal level. Um, one of these days, I'm, I'm hoping the other, the other quackademics will, will, you know, will go down with the ship. But I, I keep thinking that Zahi could turn to a certain extent. And if he did, because he's still very active there, he's, giving lectures all over the place and he sort of a, he no longer has an official position but he's sort of a kind of a, a minister without portfolio as it were of some sort or another and um, and uh, but no I mean the guys who are in charge now are um, you know they're bu- they're bureaucrats they don't have any they don't have Zahi's charisma or you know his his, his presence. I haven't met him yet, but but they're also interested. I mean, the fact that they're letting these guys into the pyramid to go fiddling around with their whatever kind of equipment they're using, and also, as you probably heard in Luxor, 
they're looking for Nefertiti's tomb mm-hmm. at the back end of, of Tutankhamun's tomb. And, you know, formally they might, but they're, you see, the main thing is that they're not going to let anybody just go and dig and, and, and explore there. You have to be connected in some way or affiliated with, you know, a, a, a recognized um, archaeological, Egyptological, university-based um, mission. And since those are exactly the people who are not just uninterested in, but actually opposed to discovering anything new that might contradict their stupid opinions, um, this is this is not about to happen. So, even I mean, the fact that we are able to do our our, our seismic work in the first place back in in 1990 was sort of amazing and part of a long story about how we got around the the opposite around Zahi actually <laughs> um, in order to get our own work done, but. Anybody else would have given us just just as big a hard time because we weren't part of anything official. Mm. Why is that? Do you think? Like, why do you think? What what do the Egyptians care? Like, isn't it better for them to have these, like, you know, different theories or competing theories? And no, (laughs) unless you're involved in in these things, you don't understand what's going on. The you can't because you're not involved. And funnily enough, I'm just finishing up writing a, a an epilogue to a book that I, by a good friend of mine that I'm that I edited for him about near 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 death experiences. Wow. And I'm just now in the middle of the epilogue, few pages about about getting new ideas. There's a wonderful saying you probably know. You know who Victor Hugo was right. Uh-huh. Yeah, everybody knows Victor Hugo is, even though most people haven't read him. But uh, the great line that what, well, there's one thing stronger than all the ideas, than, was the one thing stronger than all of the armies in, in the world, and that is an idea whose time has come. Mm-hmm. This is a good line, and this is true. But what Vic, Victor Hugo didn't think of, um, certainly didn't say, is that the second strongest thing in the world uh, um, is an idea whose time has not yet gone. And since all of the armies in the world, be they not necessarily military, military, but academic and economic and financial and every, 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 all of these, all of these established disciplines are are like ivory towers in the in in the middle of of stone ramparts, and they will and all of the armies in the world are in fact allied to the idea whose time has not yet gone. So getting anything to happen, these people's Egos are involved in the idea whose time has not yet gone. They are, for the most part, fundamentally uncreative, and they don't have original ideas of their own. So they're, they're the paradigm police, they're the mind Gestapo, and they will fight to the death to make sure that something new doesn't happen. This is difficult to understand unless you're in the middle of the battle yourself, which I've been close for decades now. So it doesn't upset me. I understand that that has to be, that's how things work, and that you have to figure out a way to do an end run around, well, yeah, you do, and, and uh, um, that's what I've been working on all along with a certain degree of success, but yeah, it's interesting because there's all of this stuff, all of this thing, all of these things that we know. Is there, is there a, is there a, 
Is there a chance that we're going to find that something will be found, like a game cha- another game-changing find or like something really, some more discoveries to happen? I mean, or is it just scoured over? Like, Oh, the- no, there's always stuff being found, but it isn't even that. Actually, the, the, the work has all been done, or a lot of the work has all been done. It's a question of acknowledging that it has been done. I mean, look, this is 20, what, 1993, uh, 1993 was our Mystery of the Sphinx video, the one with Charlton Heston. And, I, I mean, this is definitive. In any other, any other discipline in the world, it would have been acknowledged that, yeah, we got it wrong, guys. The, the Sphinx must be much, much older because it is weathered by water. And if it is weathered by water, it means that our entire view of ancient history has to be radically revised because it means that the most spectacular sculpture on Earth and the temples around it, built of these giant 100, 125, 150-ton blocks of stone, squatted into 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 place like pieces of a jigsaw puzzle, was built at a time when there's not supposed to have been any civilization at all. Hmm. So everything we've been been brought up with and have learned in school is wrong, and maybe we should listen to the guys who proved it wrong. So we don't, we don't even have to discover anything new. There is more stuff to discover. It, it's acknowledging that what's already in place is in fact correct, but you're not going to get that from these people. Is it just simply a matter of waiting for the next generation? Well, that's part of it, but now we maybe don't have to have to even do that. It's funny you're talking about this, because I'm just now writing this essay on it. That's Max Planck, who said, the physicist who said that new ideas never supplant old ideas because of the quality of the evidence. What <laughs> happens is that the old guard dies out, and new people who've been brought up with the idea take over. It's actually, but now that's Max Planck, back in the 1920s, I think somewhere around that, he said that. But now it's different because the Internet makes it impossible for the, for the, for the paradigm police to, to actually keep, keep the thing to themselves because now you can do it with, you don't, you don't see the press for the most part, um, the, man, the, mainstream, the mainstream press or the mainstream, let's say, the media. They represent, they represent an opportunity because they're interested basically only in what makes money. They're not, they're not in and of themselves, they're subservient, as it were, to, you know, let's say to, to, uh, to, to, the, um, to the keepers of the paradigm, but, but not entirely. So if they think it's going to make money, like we got, I mean, our thing went out on NBC in prime time. This was a big deal because they're out, they're out to make money and they figured this would make money. Um, if, if it were the New York Times, <laughs> wouldn't have given us the time of day. But with PBS back in those days, now it's opened up a little bit. But but um, the 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 internet makes it possible now to do an end run around all of those mainstream um, the mainstream mind Gestapo and to get the word out there. Of course, then you have the problem of distribution, which you would have had anyway, of getting the word out there to enough people. But at least what was next to impossible 30, 40, 50 years ago, that you don't have to wait for another generation. It's just a question 
of intelligently using the new technology to in, 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 in a way that's beneficial to your own, to, you know, to your own, um, uh, your own strategy, your own, your own uh, plan. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I think that it's even, you know, people are starting to get sick of the fakery and the, you know, in the mainstream media. I mean, I know once you kind of, I think, uh, not open up necessarily, but try, you know, the new media out a little bit and realize like we have these honest conversations here. And I think people are starting to resonate with that instead of, you know, all the ads and all the fakery and all the agendas and you yeah. know, the propaganda. Yeah, yeah. It's really, I think it's really starting to, uh, people oh, are really is. starting Listen, to go away from it. That's been going on for a while now. I mean, our mystery of the six is very funny. Have you seen it? Did you see it? Long time ago. Yeah, I seen it. Not, I seen it yeah. probably about eight, two years ago. When we had yeah, Robert well, I, mean, I watched it again. Yeah, I mean, it's done in 1993. And, I mean, this had a huge audience. It was done in Sweet Week. I mean, over the course of its long life, which it, it still gets shown. And you won an award yeah. for that, didn't you? What? Didn't you guys win an award no, for I got, that? I won an Emmy for it. Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, and the show itself was nominated for an Emmy and didn't get that. But even so, nomination for an Emmy is no... It's something. Yeah. And uh, so the audience was there. Millions of people saw that. And remember it. Everybody remember. I mean, not everybody, but a lot of people remember it. So you can get to, you can get to people. I mean, Ancient Aliens is a ghastly, horrible, awful show. But lots of people watch it. So you, you can get to people nowadays, which you couldn't do before. Ancient Aliens is somewhat responsible about- for the podcast. So no, but there's a a big interest in these things, and and that it should still be battled. You know that it's it should still be um should still run into the resistance that it does run into is as I said to me I've been involved in this for a long time is not surprising, but it, it is it is pretty deplorable. And it really tells you a lot about, you know, about, about quackademia. Um, this is, it can't be helped. That's who these people are, and they're not going to learn until they get, you know, beaten over the head by a stick long enough so that they'll finally listen. So for the record, you don't think it's feasible that aliens shot the dinosaurs up so that humans could evolve? <laughs> uh, no, I don't. So, okay, perfect. I, I get this. Listen, I get this crap all the time. Of of um, you know, they, 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 aliens built the pyramids, and there's a helicopter and a light bulb and Dendra and and Abydos respectively. And so you know, the, there is there is many nutcases on the one side as there are on the other, and I mean both. I don't even say nutcases, but it's just an ability to look at the evidence and acknowledge that the evidence is the evidence. And it's a question of interpreting the evidence. Have you... Uh, have you know you... about all that stuff, the light bulb and the, yeah, yeah, and yeah. the helicopters and all that? Well, it's not. <laughs> and I can explain, except I won't hear now. Do you it's think very they... easily what it in fact is. Do you think they had... Uh... Any form of light, like do you, back in those days, to look around in the pyramids and stuff. What do you think? Do you think it was just 
lanterns or do you think i mean do you no, think there was absolutely no, high technology back no because that's, well, that's a question from our, our uh, one of our listeners uh, on twitter no, from it, graham it, 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 it that's a real question how, how did they like those places yeah, because yeah. you go yeah. underground and you couldn't use torches or anything like that because they'd blacken the rooms up and they'd use up all of the oxygen and they don't have any kind of anything that is a high tech that's anything that's high tech that we know of because if there were, it would presuppose a, 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 an advanced and highly developed industrial base. You can't build, create a, life, a light bulb by channeling it up. It can't be done. And you can't create what looks like a 1950s Russian helicopter. You know, by, by, you, know they don't have, you need an advanced metallurgy and a, the ability to do engines. You need to know a lot of things for for an industrial mechanized something to appear. But not long ago, actually, and I used to joke and say, well, they all did it. You know, they were all, they were advanced, initiated human beings, and they had an inner light that allowed them to do that. I was partly joking, but not really, uh, because people, really advanced people, it's not me, and probably not you either, can do amazing things. And a couple of years ago, I've been a couple of times, I did, I was the lone contrarian at this very interesting um, conference that they do out in, Josh, in the Joshua Tree Retreat Center. And um, it was always fun. And it's a, a, UFO, a UFO thing. What is it called? Contact, Contact in the desert? Yeah. Is that the right. And, and I'm the lone contrarian there because all of these people are, you know, convinced that the, uh, that the, that the aliens built the pyramids and all of this other nonsense. And, and as I said, I'm, I'm the contrarian there, and I, I don't mind that. It's okay. We're polite to each other. I just think they're wrong. But the, the that's a very interesting place, and it was built by a, a guy called something Edwin, an Englishman, John Edwin Dingle, who became a Tibetan Lama, I mean, a, a Buddhist Lama, lived years in Tibet, and he wrote this weird little book that they have there called My Life in Tibet. He was sort of, for Tibetan Buddhism, he was sort of like what, um, who was it who brought um, Vedanta and yoga to yoga to uh, America? Um, like Ram, Ram Dass or the... No, 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 way before that, Ram Dass is American. Um, the Dalai Lama? Not, not, no, Dalai Lama is Buddhist. <laughs> Um, Vivekananda, no, I forget, um, Yogananda, Yogananda, the, the Indian guru who brought, mostly brought, um, you know, Hindu, Hindu, um, mm -hmm. Hinduism to America. And Dingle was a, a Tibetan Lama. He was really the, the sort of Tibetan equivalent. And he bought this extraordinary, um, set up this extraordinary retreat center and wrote his, his memoirs very strange little book, sort of self, not self-published, but published by the center, and very badly written, though he was, he was a journalist by trade before he became a lama. And anyway, he talks about the things that he witnessed in Tibet, mm -hmm. and he talks about underground passages where there was no light, and there could be no light, that were lit kind of from within. In other words, the yogis, the, sorry, the lamas, 
could do this. They could do all kinds of amazing physical things that look like magic, but they don't involve, they're an inner magic. They can do these things. And I mean, this is not unheard of, even in the regular world. Instances of a woman or kid gets run over by a car, and she, pick, you know, she picks the car up and moves it off the kid under certain, certain emergency circumstances. We are just regular people without any particular advanced no, we, we even have some modern examples of that, like this guy named Wim well, Hof, who's the Iceman, the, ice the Iceman, who he, he does this breathing technique that regulates his, uh, his body temperature and his immune system and his autonomic nervous system, and he can run marathons in the, in the winter. He climbed, in his shorts. he climbed Everest in his shorts. He does, you know, he can, really? he can swim hundreds of meters under the ice. Like it, it's, it's amazing shit. And it's just from him learning on his own how to practice this certain breathing wow. technique. And I didn't all, know about that. What, what's his name? Wim Hof. Wim, Wim Hof, yeah. I think it's W-I-L-M. Oh, really? yeah, yeah, well, yeah. That's, that's, that, that's very interesting because apparently the, you know, the, the, the Zen masters and the yogis and these people who devoted their lives to this kind of, of inner mastery can do such things. Exactly. They can so, melt snow but with their bodies and stuff yeah. like that, yeah. Control their immune system and shit. Yeah. 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 And so, even look like so, monkeys are smaller than us, but a monkey will fuck you up because they're strong. What does that have to do with anything? For like strength. So it's like, oh, we're, oh. If it's like if we were, you know, little skinny monkey arms can probably lift way more weight than you because. Oh, yeah. Well, that know. is, I know that is an amazing thing that animals have this kind of prodigious strength. Yeah. Anyway, so you don't need, you don't need, um, Technology cathode ray tubes to light up the interior of the tombs, but it's still a mystery. It's interesting that you have instances of recorded instances, instances of people telling what they've experienced, and I see no reason to disbelieve them. Um, and the fact is that they had they had to have something that allowed them to do these fantastic things. Huh. I wonder if it's also, if, if your eyes are actually better in the dark, if you're not used to uh, seeing artificial light all the time as well. Like, you know, they probably can see better in the dark as well. My eyes are fucked anyway. Probably. Yeah. Probably. Yeah, it wouldn't help me much because I can't see no matter what. So. <laughs> <laughs> so, hey, we wanted to ask you about your, um, the five cowboys of the apocalypse 2.0. Oh, right. Yeah, well, the... <laughs> Everybody knows the four cow, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, right? Yeah, you know, Graham's one right? of them. <laughs> what? Graham's one <laughs> of them. I see. Okay, but you know that's that's um, the Book of Revelation from from the Bible, and the four the four horsemen are um, they now in order: um, war, pestilence, famine, and death. Which is actually a kind of peculiar choice because. Famine and pestilence are usually outside human control. Death happens to us all. And war is the only one that we could, as human beings, potentially avoid. But anyway, those are the four horsemen. And, you know, they, they, presage, they presage doom and destruction and so on. And so I, I, I don't know, forget exactly when I hit upon the idea, but fairly recently that, you know, I see us headed or unless something absolutely miraculous happens, something pretty awful happening. And, but the, the ones who are bringing it on, 
by no means as obvious as as war, pestilence, and uh, and famine. But they're the, they're the five cowboys who are who are actually always portrayed as the good guys, and you know they ride white stallions and they wear white stetson hats, and they you know they trample everything in opposition under them. And the five cowboys are in order, not necessarily in order of importance, are um, are capitalism, patriotism, democracy, uh, technology, and entertainment. And they're actually the forces of destruction that are bringing the whole thing down one way or another. And so I'm playing with, I don't think I'll do a book on them, but altogether, because I don't see the necessity for it, but... I'm not exactly sure what, but I'm developing these ideas. I mean, in a nutshell, capitalism is based upon the philosophy, everything for me and nothing for you. Uh, patriotism is ba- based on the philosophy, and I'm, obviously these are simplistic, these are simplistic definitions, mm-hmm. but it doesn't mean that they're simple-minded. They're just reduced to, to, to the lowest common denominator, anyway common denominator. The, the the essence of, of patriotism is everything for us, nothing for them. The essence of democracy is is the dishwashers elect the chef and tell them what to do. I don't know about you, but I don't want to eat in a restaurant where the dishwashers elect the chef and tell them what to do. Even then, that's not that's not really as as powerful an, imi- as, an image as it ought to be because in any good restaurant, the the dishwashers know a lot more about running it than the average voter knows about running the government. I mean, the democracy is a is a catastrophe in de- by definition. It's very interesting. I mean, Mark Twain, great great quote. Twain is a favorite writer. Says any time I find myself agreeing with the majority, you know, it's time to reconsider my position. Churchill, who in one context says that the democracy looks like the worst. Not an exact quote, but looks like the worst of all possible political systems until you look at the others. This <laughs> sounds clever, but it isn't actually. Churchill knew nothing about ancient Egypt and wouldn't have understood it if he had known about it. But this is not exactly true. It, it is by definition a catastrophe. And he himself, Churchill, in another, in another quote where he says, the worst argument or the best argument against democracy is five minutes of conversation with the average voter. I mean, you want to know, I mean, even if we had a democracy, which we don't, it's, it's all run by people with despicable people with lots of money. To corporatism is all not an oligarchy. What? As yeah. An, I mean, it's an oligarchy. But, but even, even if we had one, all you have to do is follow the news. I mean, three cheers for the Internet. Just about anything you follow, I mean, the right-wing garbage is indescribable, I mean, it's unbelievable. And you read the comments of who's commenting about what, and, I mean, the level of, 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 of rage and stupidity that goes into these comments is enough to make anyone believe that if these people all voted, it might even be worse than it is. I mean, it is a disaster. Uh, technology... Is a two-edged sword. The big problem with technology is not just the hydrogen bomb and you know all of these other horrors that we have in the cluster bombs and the sarin gas 
and all and the pollution and all of the rest of it is obviously idiotic garbage that's that's destroying the earth. The bigger problem is that technology deprives just about everyone from making a living out of their own creativity. Mm. The only people who benefit out of technology, I mean, yeah, these are good things. Even I, a, Luddite, a neo-Luddite, would certainly rather go to a 21st century dentist than a 21st dynasty dentist in Egypt. Um, there's a lot of good that technology does. It's a two-edged sword. But the, the, the really the big underlying problem is that it really deprives people of making a living doing anything creative. And we all have, all human beings have implicit within us, buried somewhere and unable to escape real creativity. Almost nobody can make a living out of their own creativity. The people who who do, who devise and the, the, the technology, it's creative in its own right. But I don't know about them, but I would feel not terribly proud of myself coming home and telling my family, boy, I did this great bobblehead doll today, or worse yet, gee, I came home, you know what I did today? I invented a new kind of gas that can kill a whole city in just one tiny little capsule of it. No, most most technology, the vast majority of of technology is either outright destructive or has has unintended catastrophic consequences. So that's the fourth cowboy. And entertainment, by and large, is something that you do to kill time before it kills you. It's an absolute waste of time, most of it. I mean, look at what Hollywood produces. How much good stuff have you seen? That I mean, entertainment is the, the antithesis of art. How much, how much actually, let's say, soul-enhancing stuff have you have you seen under the under the the guise of entertainment? So those are the five cowboys hmm. in a large nutshell. But it, it it calls for much further development, and I'm not exactly sure when I'll get around to doing it or in what context I'll do it. Hmm. But that's that's on the that's on the calendar. That's interesting. Somewhere. Yeah. So I wonder how. The study of like the sacred science of Egypt or, or the mystery schools or just just learning about Egypt for decades has has um, has probably influenced your decision on the five cowboys. Yeah, well, sure. Actually, I, I without having a name for them, I understood the the five cowboys really from the get go. I, mean, I, I I understood at a very early age. I mean, I'm not a I'm not a great genius. You know, you nowadays. Wonders of the internet. No week goes by when you don't turn it on, and there's some five-year-old kid playing Beethoven's Kreutzer Sonata, standing on his head while he's eating an ice cream ice cream cone. And I was never one of those. I make you really feel stupid as kids. Um, but what I was was looking back. I, I was psychologically precocious. I knew at the age of thirteen that I'd been born into a lunatic asylum, unmistakably. Hmm. And it took a long time before I figured out what I wanted to do about it, and that was originally because I'm a scholar by default. I'm really a, I mean, I regard myself more as a writer than a, than a scholar. And um, I wanted to be the little kid who said, the, the emperor has no clothes. And I started out doing 
Uh, with novel and plays and you know, various creative things, and then stumbled onto Egypt through a weird set of circumstances. And but I've never lost track of you know the the the, the downside of it. And and um, so the five cowboys have have always been with me, but it wasn't until I came across well first the Gurdjieff work and then Egypt through that. That I realized it was an upside that it wasn't always a lunatic asylum, and then Egypt really caught my fancy hmm. for a, a, a variety of reasons because I realized that it was the only, the only place on earth that still existed where you could experience what a civilization once was like in China and India and probably Mesoamerica were probably equally advanced. But just about everything that old has disappeared. So it's only in Egypt that you can go, you know, you've been there yeah. one day to another, experiencing. And now even in ruins, and you know, with the colors gone and the crowds around, you still get a sense of what it was once was like. And for a bunch of jackasses to talk about progress as if they were, as if these morons of today, destructive morons of today are... Are, are are in advance on the, what they had back then. I mean, this is this is. I mean, this is beyond satire, even. So yeah, so the five cowboys have always been with me. I just haven't put them into this particular into this particular context. We talk about we talk about personal experiences a lot here as well, and and some of our guests have you know they've got they've had synchronicities or things that have led them on their path. And it sounds somewhat similar with you. You had a set of strange circumstances uh, that brought you to Egypt, but do you, do you have a regular spiritual practice or anything like that? Or have you, have you had some uh, personal experiences that have shifted things at all for you or, or do you want to mention? Oh yeah, sure. I mean, yeah, you don't get onto this unless something special happens that tells you that what you're being taught as a kid is, is, is a bunch of rubbish. Yeah, certain, certain things. I mean, nothing, no no sort of being blinded by the light on the way to Damascus or anything of that <laughs> sort. But yeah, many things. I mean, when I first, I mean, I grew up middle-class Jewish. You know, my parents were, were quite nice people, but completely clueless. And uh, so, you know, I just, at age 13, knew that I was in the middle of a madhouse, but there was nobody to talk to. And eventually I got, I mean, no music in the house or no literature. My parents thought Rodgers and Hammerstein was classical music and it didn't know any better. And um, and then I, through one weird circumstance or another, got, you know, I got to know about classical music. And then when I was in the army in Germany, needless to say, I did not join. I was drafted. But I was one of the few people... You know, John F. K. JFK's, I mean, he wasn't bad as presidents go, but his stupid statement about ask not what your what your government can do to for you, ask what you that your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your for your country. What a bunch of bullshit! Whoever woke up in the morning asking what your country could do for you, nobody. But but in fact, I think I was one of the very few people on the face of the planet whose government actually did something for me because I had this extraordinary 
no job, job that took eight minutes a day when I was in the army in Germany. I had some money saved up from summer jobs from co- you know when I was in college and uh, and a lovely German girlfriend and I had I like fast cars my one my first last and only Porsche back in 1955 and I was driving all around Europe because we had plenty of free time I was going to all of these cool places when there was no traffic and everything was cheap so my my government actually did something for me but uh, while I was there, one of the places I got to on a you know empty November morning all by myself was the Cathedral of Chartres, and uh, absolutely empty at dawn. That that was an epiphany. That said, well, hmm. everything. But little I knew about these things. I mean, I always institutionalized religion. I've always I always found and still find rep- repugnant and destructive. But whoever built this fantastic thing knew what they were talking about. And so that was one of those things. And then I started getting back home and started getting published. And, uh, you know, then they, they then came across the Gurdjieff work, and that's my focus. Um, and But no, you know, it's, it's kind of, I don't know what you call it. It's, it's no dramatic, no dramatic near-death experience in, in living life. I mean, people do have those. Uh, mystics of all the ages that have these that have these tremendous enlightening experiences. No, not, not those as such, but let's say a, a, a much enhanced let's say a much enhanced sensitivity to to the higher realities than I would, I would otherwise have had if I'd not been following this path. Yeah. Have you uh, read Graham Hancock's new book? Not the new one, no, but I'm, we're good friends. And uh, so uh, I, haven't th- I haven't seen this one, but I've read most of his others, yes. Yeah, I know he's always, uh, I was listening to him on Joe Rogan, and he was paying a lot of accolades to you for getting him going in the beginning. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. He, 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 he describes it, my guidebook fell off, literally fell off the shelf when he was going to Egypt to try and track down um, the Ark of the Covenant, which the Ethiopian church uh, maintains, and, and Graham, that they wouldn't show it to him, but he tracked it back, back in all likelihood to Ethiopia, but they wouldn't show it to him, so you're still out. Hmm. But yeah, we get, we get on well, Graham and I. What about the mystery schools at all? Is, that, uh, is there something there they can teach us? Somewhat. Something in the mystery schools that can teach us as a society? Yeah, but nobody knows what the mystery schools are. I mean, people talk about this as though you could sort of apply for membership. Yeah, yeah exactly. It, it, it long since, I mean, they've, at least formally, they're gone. There are you hear people who, who talk about, oh, well, they're still there. You just know how to, have to know where to look. Yeah. Well, I don't know where to look, but I haven't seen any. But and, any legitimate... Any legitimate spiritual practice, and there are there are those around. There are even within the various churches, within the formal religions, horrible as the institutions may be. There are monasteries where the people really practicing Christianity, and there are, you know, there there are synagogues where they're actually you know studying the real stuff, and there are mosques where where real Islam is being practiced, and for my purposes, all of, none of those things 
I'm too anarchic for that, but uh, I've been involved in the Gurdjieff work for since the 60s, and uh, still am, and that to me, that's my past. It's not everybody's past, but it's mine. Hmm. What, uh, go ahead. No, you go ahead. What, um... What uh, what do you think are a couple of the main things that society today should adopt from Egypt? Like, what do you think? Um, what's I suppose? What's your vision of how things operated on a day to day? From all your research, that would be superior to how we live day to day today. <laughs> it's a good question. Actually, I would think I would think that in a in, in a structured a structured society like that, I mean, the majority of people would not be clued into the profundities of a, of, a, of a truly esoteric society. But Egypt is a one-issue civilization. That one issue is the immortality mm. of the soul. Mm. Period. That's, that's the aim of our existence here. It means, and this is part of all of the religions, it's just that the people who talk least about it are the ones who are so supposedly in charge of of the institutions. I mean, when was the last time you heard the priest talk about actually what you have to do to achieve salvation? Almost never. They're busy saying that everything that's wrong is because of gay marriage or some damn thing or another. <laughs> and 10% of your paycheck. <laughs> yeah. And, but... But it's there, and, and in my view, this comes back to the five cowboys. In Egypt, the whole thing is, is constructed in such a way and directed toward achieving this higher level of consciousness. And at the, at the, let's say at the more common levels, it's, it's probably not expressed in so many words or in, even in direct practices, yes, in ceremonies and rituals and stuff like that to a certain extent. But the nature of the society, when I was talking about creativity before and technology, in Egypt, whether or not it was deliberate, it's hard to say, but the technology is always simple, but at the same time incredible. When you go, I don't even know if it was open in 1990 when you were there, the, the, the museum at... Um, well, the, the Cairo Museum, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, we, yeah, we went to that the museum they, they had this, the cachette, it's called, where they put these statues that they discovered in the 80s. These are, these are statues, simple in, in, in form, but executed with such absolute, exquisite perfection that, that they, they take your breath away. And Egypt is full of things like that. So everybody, whatever it was that people were doing, everything is transformational. And this went up until our Church of Progress mm. and the Industrial Revolution, which is kind of the beginning of the end in certain ways. Yeah, I'd rather go to my 21st century dentist than whoever was doing whatever they were doing in 1750 before the, revol before the Industrial Revolution took place. But... Even then, even even until quite recently, most there were no such thing as jobs. Have you ever thought of that? I mean, yeah, there were slaves up to here anyway. Up till, in fact, up till 1960, um, might as well have been a slave. And after after the world, you know, 
after the Civil War. That's... Arts and crafts and, and, you know, and professions. Every, everything, everything that people did had a... There were no factories. Um, there was, except, you know, on the plantations, yeah, there were, you know, if you were a slave, you, that was a job. But otherwise, there were crafts. Everything to be a cobbler or to be a carpenter or to be any, any of those arts and crafts was intrinsically satisfying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, in and of itself, <clears throat> yes. I mean, nobody wants to go back to medieval times, including the between an oppressive church and, and, and uh, or you could say a maniacal church and an oppressive aristocracy. No, this is not a good time to live. But nevertheless, for all of its downside, the upside was that everybody worked at something that was intrinsically satisfying. So do you think Nobody the pyramids were built? Who likes their job? What? I don't mind my job some days. <laughs> well, do you have a, you have, you, but you're, you're operating at a different level. You probably wouldn't like it much if you were working for Fox News. <laughs> no. <laughs> Might might be all right though. Not, not if you <laughs> no, still had any integrity involved. No, that's a really but good yeah. point though, because if if we can, you can imagine in our society if we had the, you know, the belief system of immortality of the soul. That's right. Um, how that would change? That's, how that would change consumerism, the military industrial complex, capital? Like everything. actually, actually, it would change the five cowboys probably. Well, it would it would put the cow the five cowboys in their place, yeah. chasing cows. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> I, and I don't mean in a dogmatic religious way, but just in a oh. in an you know in a uh, in a spiritual way. Exactly. Well, this is what, in fact, this, this is this is why Egypt is important, or so important, because it it stands as a model. It's not that we're going to go mummifying our pharaohs again, or or build, even building those great. I might, I might request to be mummified, <laughs> just to fuck oh, with yeah. my wife. <laughs> well, I know some people who might be able to help you out. Just, you know. That'll be the last <laughs> prank I play on my wife. It's lots of backsheesh, though. <laughs> when, she read, when the attorney reads the will, she'll be like, oh, by the way, you need to mummify him. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, but you see, the, this is where Egypt is, is that important, because, because the principles upon which it is based this, the, this, this certain, this certainty and the potential immortality of the soul. Without that, a civilization, no matter how shiny and however good the dentistry gets or the computers get, even without that knowledge or without that conviction, there's no civilization possible. Hmm. It's all the cocksucker brothers and all the rest of those savages. They're going to take, they're in charge and they will continue to be in charge until enough people, and it doesn't have to be that many, understand what's involved in, in, in being personally civilized and then doing the necessary inner work and then somehow or another um, communicating the importance of it, which is, as I said, very simply to the immortality of the soul, convincing enough people that this has to be practiced. You can't take it in the car of Swanden's course. You're not going to get it that way. And it, you know, it's not going to work on a weekend somewhere or another, although the weekend somewhere or another can wake you up to its importance. But at the moment, um, those of us who 
tried to practice it with whatever might on case limited success. Nevertheless, um, know that that's the key to escaping from this, this catastrophe that we call progress. <laughs> Which is really digress. Huh. So, so uh, what do you got coming up uh, then? Are you speaking anywhere uh, coming up? Or are you, um, you, you're doing your tours? No, uh, no, well, tours, yeah. I've got, I've got one. Actually, I, I have one coming up in the next week. Anybody who wants to really rush, rush on, you can get it. But, in fact, the, and you, get, you find out on my website, uh, jawest.net. And I have another one coming up. If I get enough people together, it's difficult at the moment. Another one coming up uh, uh, mid, forget the exact date, but I think it's February 15th to the 29th. And then another one coming up March March 19th to April 2nd, something like that. Oh, that's good. Yeah, so I've got, I've got the trips and uh, anybody interested and uh, you know, who's got, obviously, the money, which is um, what is offered, actually not bad. It's not cheap, of course, but. It cost you more to go to France for two weeks. And then what? What about that? Uh, what Darren was asking is there is there a magical Egypt too? Well, they're, they're working on it. That's my partner, Chance Gardner, who's working on it. But as always, getting the funding together. Right. He's, he's, he's working on the first one, and and he lives in Australia now. So there will be, yeah, as long as you know, again, the core, the, the key to. So much involves, unfortunately, funding, and it's one of the things I'm least good at, at uh, going out after. I mean, this is not unusual for people who are zeroed in on, yeah, know, on, yeah, on well, find their out, own work. Find it's, out if there's a uh, a crowdsourcing effort or something like that, because well, uh, if, if there is, is we hoping. can promote it for you, for sure. Well, yeah, actually, my son is... is has quit his his job and is is working is going is working as sort of project manager general organizer and stuff with me and he he knows how to organize and I'm hoping that he will take on and and do a lot of the a lot of the stuff that I'm absolutely incapable of doing <laughs> of zero talent for and and no interest in I just can't bring myself to get involved in that but too much too many other things that occupy me, and I'm not a kid anymore, so I'm figuring on being here still a, still a while, but 83 is still 83, it's not not 33. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, taking, I'm cognizant of that. But yeah, the trips are happening, and no books are there, and the mystery of the, the, um, the original series, the Magical Egypt series, is available. Copies of that to sell, but trips are the main thing. And as I said, anybody contemplating it, get it in now while uh, while they're getting still good. And you never even know with these lunatics around if if, if suddenly it gets you know to a point where where bad stuff really starts happening there, and then the government shuts it down. So yeah. you don't know. Yeah. And if, so, if someone out there in Gramerica land. Uh decides to go from listening to this interview, send us an email and we'll send you some shirts to wear around Egypt. That's a good idea, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and so... Oh, yeah. Thanks. So we're going to put uh, on... Yeah, that's in hats and, and American flag T-shirts. Yeah, that'll go down well. No, we're Canadian, so... Yeah, we're Canadian. We're, we'll, we're going <laughs> to... 
We're going to give you some Grey America shirts. It'll have like... It's just a Moai smoking Oh, dough. okay. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. okay. Good, <laughs> They will go over very well. <laughs> so, so we're going to link to all your stuff in the show notes uh, of the podcast. Oh, thank you. Yeah. yeah did you so have much. any uh, final thoughts maybe to leave our listeners with? Um, I don't think so. I think we pretty much covered... Yeah, it's, it's been a great chat. Not everything's significant. Um, yeah. I can't, but you mentioned that we were talking about talking points. Yeah, we covered... I think we covered just about everything, haven't we? Yeah, you bet. Yeah, I think yeah. So. Yeah, yeah, perfect. Yeah, it's been a fascinating chat, and, and we really want to thank you for coming on. Yeah, especially close, so close thank to Christmas. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you. And, um, yeah, European people can... Do they have my uh, email address if they want to connect? Great. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. Oh, one thing. No, one thing I wanted to mention. Yeah, and and this is a because as I said, I, you know, I'm 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 pretty fit for my age, and uh, you know, I still get up the, the 14 stories to get to the pyramid and stuff. But over over time, um, you know, a few extra pounds were going on, and at a certain point, I mean, I was still I run and fit, but it was the extra pounds were on. And at a certain point, on one of my trips. Um, I was talking with one of the women on a trip, and she told me about this nutritional program that I got onto, and it's a it's a uh, one of these networking things. And that if any, any I, you know, I I took off twenty over twenty pounds in a couple of months, painlessly, and it's it's something that that um, is painless. I mean, you can you can do it without going on some kind of horrible diet, and then. You go off the diet, and three weeks later, you're back to where you started. Um, it doesn't take much discipline, and um, and and it, and it works. So if anybody is interested in it, and it enhances, grows telomeres and the things that are responsible for aging and all of that. And I figure I'm a pretty good poster boy if I can get if I can get up to the 14 stories to the king's chamber at my age. This is not bad, and. Um, and so, anybody interested, email me, because you have to, it's not a one-size-fits-all, somebody you have to talk to somebody who really knows the ins and outs to sign up on it. So send me an email and send me your phone number. Very important, you have my phone number, so I don't have to talk to you about it, but my friend who put me on to it, talk to you about it, and you take it from there. If it interests you, you go sign on if you don't, but you don't. Is this like a herbal, like a supplement or something like that? Or no, it's 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 not really. It's 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 an ingenious combination of new and old. In other words, it makes use of all kinds of. It's, it's virtually all, practically all organic. A lot of it is just common sense. Um, a fair amount of it are these are these protein shakes, so that you're you're cutting down on all of the stuff that puts weight on. You're cutting down on it, but without Ever, without being hungry, you're eating enough good good stuff and regular stuff so that you don't feel as though so you're depriving yourself. Nice. But it's it's different strokes for different folks, and I, I often describe it as it's a it's a program that's like designed by the the, the Te- Nikola Tesla of nutrition. It's really ingenious because it makes use of all of these different modalities, yeah, put together, but by by. by um, like, like people who really know what they're talking about. And as I said, it's a networking thing. So sign on, 
It's not, and, it's not a great pyramid scheme, is it? <laughs> no, see, this is a, a pyramid scheme is, is a, a pyramid scheme does not, is not product oriented, but it's, but it's got a, it's managed to get itself a bad name. And I'm not exactly sure why. I, I think it may be because it's, it's really, it's, it's really a very beneficent way of, of marketing because instead of getting stuff at Walmart yeah, where yeah, it's made in China. Yeah, you go through your friends and stuff, yeah. This yeah. is really really responsibly done and it is and if you're into the mar- the marketing side of it, which I I mean, I'm not because I don't want to do the marketing myself, but you know, if people sign on and I'm they're on my list as it were, yeah. and I have absolutely no objections to making money of doing this, and for some people, it's a pretty big company. Yeah, no, I've, I've I've tried lots of these things. I got like there's essential yeah. oils, and you know, I've, yeah, yeah, yeah so there's what, all health food that? products and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, so, I couldn't so, resist the pyramid pun, though. I mean, it's had to be. Well, I know people sad. use that all the time, but if it, <laughs> it, it, it really is. If it's a, you know, if it's a, if it's legit, it's yeah. a way in which in in which you help. I mean, I'm signed on. For my friends, every time I order it, they get some money. People sign on because of me every time they buy the stuff. Yeah, I, well, I'm, ta- I'm taking a protein something. shake right now. So. You should sign what? on, I'm, I'm doing protein shakes right now. So. You should sign yeah, on. Yeah, I so, have to look at it, so, yeah. all, all of these things make sense. And as I said, this one is particularly attractive because it is, it is, it is so painless. I mean, once you're on it, you kind of, I've been on it now for about six months, once you're on it, you find hard to imagine that you wouldn't stay on it because it works. Yeah. So no, anyway, anybody so, interested, as I said, email me, J-A-W-S-B-H-I-N-X, my initials in Sphinx, Sphinx at AOL. And very important, you send me a phone number. And then my friend will give you a call and you set up a... And you talk to her. And okay, good. I will sign grandma. Yeah, I'll put, sure. I'll put that. Uh, I'll and put you that can in the show climb notes. up. You can. I'll race you to the to the top of the pyramid. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. We'll put that in the in the notes as well. Okay. Yeah. Great. Please do. All right. Okay. Well, thank, thanks thanks yeah. a lot for your time, John. So Have thank a merry you, Christmas. And uh, merry Christmas to you. And um, if you if you if you can get the the finances together, come on a trip with me. Actually. Oh, you know, also, I didn't mention, I'm very bad at looking at after my own interests, but I have, really seriously, I have a, um, a an incentive. Anybody who has a group or an audience or, like, I don't know what your what your structure is like. I mean, you know, I don't know how, what your audience is for, for America. Um, but if you get 10 people to sign on through your program, you get a freebie. Okay, good to know. Yeah, and what's the max? Fine. What's the max in a group that you take around? Well, don't worry about it. It's, oh, really? Twenty. Well, it's twenty-four with max, but I I rarely get that these days. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. There you go. If ten get, people so, sign up from the show. Then well, yeah, we can ten, send ten, is, ten is ten is minimum. I really can't do it if I don't get ten because yeah. this isn't worth it. Yeah, yeah. But I've get got 10, young but kids. I, I, so like I can't get go 18, 20, for 22. a couple of years. 18, 20, 22, I'm, all, I'm doing okay. But there's, there is an incentive, so if you get 10 people together, you plug go in, with Graham and John Anthony people. West. What a, what a couple of weeks. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, no, it's, it's really... And, and I mean, it's not bragging to say it's the only show in town because 
in truth, there are only a handful of people who understand symbolist Egypt well enough to transmit it, and I just happen to be the only one that does trips. No, and I can but, I can I can vouch for people that have gone on their own, and like how different it would be if you went with somebody that could take care. Oh of yeah, that. yeah, That'd yeah, really nice. So, right on. Well, okay, thanks, thanks, John. Thanks, okay. And, and uh, wait, what's your, your Gra- name? Graham right? and Darren. Yeah. Graham, yeah, Graham. Yeah. So very good talking to you, and uh, be interested to see what the feedback is. Okay, and, good. Uh, yeah, absolutely. When the new, yeah, when the okay. new book comes out, we come back and we'll have, we'll talk about that. Well, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, actually, with the book that I'm just finishing editing and writing the epilogue for, that is a very interesting book. Oh, and, for sure, um, the NDE one. Yeah, went on the near death experiences. Yeah, this is actually if you go to, I have the website in my head. Yeah, yeah. What's that guy? I look it up. The, the website is, and my colleague, who's my friend who's writing it, um, is, might want to have him on. Yes, yeah. Um, the, 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 the website is, uh, is dead, is, I'm not sure if it's the, or, or just Dead Saints Chronicles. Okay. Dead Saints Chronicles, and it is it is a very remarkable book. Okay, good. Yeah, yeah. We want to do actually. We've been wanting to do an episode on that. We talk about it all the time. And yeah, yeah do it. And and his name is David Solomon, and all of the information is you'll you'll get it there. And on the website, it'll there's enough on there to explain what the book is. And okay, what it's about. Perfect. Sounds okay. Good. All right. Yeah, Thanks great, a lot, John. John. Have very a good, good holiday, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye, you guys. Okay. Yeah, and have a merry Christmas. Okay. Bye. Bye. our chat with Mr. John Anthony West. It's kind of surprising, too. It's 150 episodes to get here. Yeah, considering we met him at Paradigm like a couple years ago now. I wasn't there year. that year. Was that the year that you weren't there? That he yeah. was there? Oh, are you sure? No, no, no. He was there the year you were there. No, that was 2012. He wasn't there. No, no, no. He was there last year. Yeah, and he was there the year before, wasn't he? No. Oh. I don't think so. What'd you think? That was good stuff. Uh, rather enjoyable. I love researchers like that who specialized in, in something like uh, Egypt or some specific part of archaeology. Or like, do you know who else was was like that? That guy from the UK, uh, Paul Devereaux, right? Where they're totally open minded about all this other stuff, right? Paul's writing about lucid dreaming, and and John Anthony West has got more of this sort of um, <clears throat> esoteric look at things or metaphysical. It's almost like these subjects have forced them to look outside the box and they realize that we are living in this sort of fake paradigm. 
That's how they get you. Right. Yeah, little glimpses through the window. And he talked about that NDE book from his colleague, that David Solomon guy, Dead Saints Chronicles. We should uh, we should get that. And, and take his him. trip to Egypt, man. Like, if you're going to go to Egypt, that's the way to do it. Oh, yeah. Above all else, go with John Anthony. Oh, imagine that. That can be all right. Check out the five Cowboys of the Apocalypse. Choo, 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 choo. Who are they? Barack Obama, George Bush. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> you're on your own. <laughs> All right. So, yeah, we want to thank everybody for listening. And thanks to John Anthony West for finally coming to this to the Igloo to talk about Egypt and all this fun stuff. Uh, you know how to support the show. Check out the show notes. There's links to everything, uh, especially tell some friends. Share Facebook. Don't just like it. And, uh, yeah, we'll see you uh, next week. We've got lots of good shows coming up. So thank you very much. And don't forget, Egypt is like sex. Jesus. Jesus.